This is case 12 from the Shoyoloku. Dijang planting the fields. The pointer. Scholars plow with a pen, orators plow with a tongue. We, patriarch mendicants, lazily watch the white ox on an open ground not paying attention to the rootless, auspicious grass. How to pass the days. The main case. Dijang asked Yushan, where do you come from? Yushan said, from the south. Dijang said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Yushan said, there is extensive discussion Dijang said, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? Yushan said, what can you do about the world? And Dijang said, what do you call the world? The verse. Source and explanation variously are all made up. Passing to ear from mouth, it comes apart. Planting fields, making rice, ordinary household matters. Only those who have investigated to the full would know. Having investigated to the full, you clearly know there is nothing to seek. Jifang, after all, didn't care to be unfifth as a marquee. Forgetting his state, he returned, same as fish and birds, washing his feet in the Changlang the hazy waters of autumn. Good morning, almost good afternoon. It's good to be here with all of you and take a bit of time to rest in the all-embracing silence that is always available to us and is always deeply healing even at times where the world becomes obnoxiously loud and the madness seems unbearable to tolerate. Yushan said, what can you do about the world? And Dijang said, what do you call the world? What are we talking about? So over the past few weeks, we have been exploring and discussing the teachings of Wineng, who is a very important teacher in our tradition and profoundly important to both schools of Zen, the Soto and the Rinzai. And Bodhidharma, who is considered the first ancestor of the tradition, expounded a very simple kind of teaching that points directly to our essential nature. So we can see what is already inherently there in each of us. And so we can realize how we create and perpetuate our own suffering. And how we create great deal of harm, cause great deal of harm to each other. However, while the point of the teaching may be simple and fundamentally true for everyone, it can be challenging to personally experience and embody this in our everyday life. Primarily because we are deeply entrenched in our habitual thinking patterns and repetitive behavior. 
and because we draw a sense of security and familiarity from these patterns. Zen teachings can often seem out of reach and too radical or steep for ordinary people primarily because of that, because of how much security and comfort we draw from what we know. Huineng's teachings or his approach to the practice can dramatically change this appearance and actually make it, make it feel more approachable, more available, and actually more relevant to each of us, regardless of how stuck we may feel. See, the fact is the optimal conditions for realization are always within the current circumstances. And as long as we understand that what is realized is not dependent on circumstances and conditions. If we think that realization has anything to do with specific kinds of circumstances or specific location or a specific way of being, then it may or may not be available. And if we see it as something that may or may not be available, we are not in alignment with what is being realized. Right? So if not me, who? If not now, when? And now is now, in the midst of chaos. In section 23 in the platform Sutra, Huineng brings up the vow of taking refuge in the three treasures. And he says that we need to be clear about what it means to take refuge and know what we are really turning towards when we make such a vow. And as he explained clearly, taking refuge in the Buddha is turning towards our own enlightened mind. Taking refuge in the Dharma is turning towards the truth of our own mind. And taking refuge in the Sangha is turning towards the purity of our own mind. In other words, turning towards what is already there. Right? So these are good words, but they are just words that can point, that only have the power to point to the truth. So then he added this very important advice. Good friends, each of you should examine this for yourself. Don't just take my words for it. Examine it for yourself. Do not misdirect your attention. This is, this is where it's at. This is where, this is the fork on the road. Do not misdirect your attention. Or maybe first we have to become aware of the fact that we are misdirecting our attention. And then he said, the sutras only say to take refuge in the Buddha of yourself. They don't say to take refuge in some other Buddha. If you don't take refuge in your own nature, there is no other place of refuge. There is no other place of refuge. Well, there are many places of refuge which are our own creations. But the, pra- but the practice is shedding light on always is what is beyond our own creation. So instead of blindly following a tradition of practice or blindly following our aversion to a tradition, 
we need to truly examine what we put our trust in and what we take refuge in, which in many cases happens without much awareness. When Winang says you should examine for yourself, he doesn't mean to examine the practice dualistically as a doctrine we need to accept or deny based on our fixed personal parameters. What he's saying is that we should examine our habitual tendencies and harmful propensities, have the courage to not follow them, and to personally experience that the practice is encouraging us to follow what is already within us. And the task is to discover it, or maybe rediscover it. In the commentary, Bill Porter says, these are the three treasures of our own nature. They are the true jewels among the imitations and synthetic gems of our minds. We all have them, but we need to look for them, and looking for them outside ourselves is a waste of time. As we say, do not be deceived by strangers. So looking for them outside ourselves is not necessarily outside of the mind because our mind is creating what is outside of the mind. Our minds are creating the strangers, which we then follow. And those are the imitations of who we are. So the imitation synthetic gems of our minds are conjured up by a manufactured sense of self. The self is manufactured and that manufactured self is conjuring up stuff. And when we follow this stuff, we don't only strengthen the illusory self, we also drift further away from who we really are, feel divided within and contribute to the divisiveness of the world. An illusory self is never satisfied and is always in a state of wanting more. More power, more money, more assets, more control over others, more recognition, more land. Whatever it is, it's never enough. It will never be enough. We follow this illusory self, become enslaved by its constant hunger for more, and we call this freedom. And many people have a very twisted idea of what freedom really is and a very twisted idea of what wisdom tradition is all about. And we tend to think that going along with our small-minded, self-centered cocoon is freedom. And we view a practice tradition as being restrictive. While in reality, it's exactly the opposite. This is what the Buddha meant when he said that we are upside down. When we're upside down, we take refuge in the self-created misconception version of reality and blindly act in ways that are harmful and hateful. And this is the mechanism that perpetuates madness in people like Putin, Trump, and many other deeply deluded human beings who are like puppets on the strings of delusions. Putin's obsession with reinstating the so-called glory of the old Soviet Union it's actually a great example of how an egoic behavior goes on steroids. And what happens when human beings obey their small-mindedness? It all begins 
when we go astray, disconnect from who we are, and follow after a conceptual image of a self, which always feels insufficient. Doesn't matter how much will be annexed. It doesn't matter if the whole world becomes Soviet Union. Putin will never have enough. Because there is no such a thing. We're already enough. If we don't know that, if we don't experience that, how can we find something else? So this insufficiency can never be satisfied regardless of how much it conquers. And we do the same. On a small scale, we do the same. We are trying very hard to accumulate, to conquer, to become. And it's all based on a misconception, misunderstanding that we actually need to do this. Misconception of insufficiency makes us go astray. So looking at this madness that we see in the news, feeling the pain is important. It's also important to study, to understand why do we do this? Not why Putin does that. Why do we all do it? Why do we all go astray? Why do we assume that we're insufficient? Winang says, the capacity of the mind is great, but if you don't use it, it is small. Small-mindedness leads to such actions. When we use the great capacity of our being, we act in ways that propagate unity and deep care for others. But when we do not use it, we end up acting in ways that divide and spread, spread hatred and further suffering. On a small scale and large scale, it's the same thing. Thich Nhat Hanh says, in Buddhism, Non-duality is the essential characteristic of love. In love, the person who loves and the person being loved are not two. Love has an organic characteristic. In light of interbeing, all problems of the world and of humankind should be solved according to the principle of organic love and non-dual understanding. These principles can be applied to solve the problems of the Middle East and the former Soviet Union. The suffering of one side is also the suffering of the other side. The mistakes of one side are also the mistakes on the other side. When one side is angry, the other side suffers and vice versa. These principles can also be applied to solve environmental problems such as climate change and environmental degradation. Rivers, oceans, forests, mountains, earth and rocks are all in our body. To protect the living environment is also to protect ourselves. This is the organic, non-dualistic nature of the Buddhist way of looking at conflicts, the environment and love. It's all within us. We tend to externalize. We tend to look somewhere else. We point a finger. But all of it arises within us, within each of us.
So it's not the others who are creating wreak havoc on the world. We do it. In Musong's commentary on the Diamond Sutras, he wrote, What the Buddha sought through his teaching was to establish a healthy relationship between the self and this fleeting transitory world. This is the essence of the Diamond Sutra, how to view the world around us so that we are not taken in by the mere appearances of things and hence not caught in the suffering that samsara brings. Like all Buddhist scriptures, it teaches a way of being in the world without being of it. And so to establish a healthy relationship with each other and with the world, we need to transcend our small-mindedness by cutting through the mental barriers between self and other, which means not getting so entangled by our personal stories and opinions, do the best we can to avoid the cyclical defensive behaviors, which often happen. And it's important to note that they happen even before or even when we don't use words. We become defensive within. The defensiveness is automatic mechanism because we think that we are lacking, because we think that there is someone or something to defend. These are symptoms. And what we need to do is go to the essence of it rather than deal with the, or rather than again and again react to the symptoms, react to the triggers, which is that, that's why we often talk about being a lion versus a dog, right? When you throw a stick through the dog, the dog goes to bring it, bring it back, pick it up, bring it back, fetch again and again. You throw a stick to the lion, the lion doesn't go after the stick, it goes after you. And we need to practice like lions. We need to go directly to the source of our behavior. Why? Why am I, why do I feel like there is something to defend? Why do I react like this? We have to ask. And we have to examine. Rather than assume. There is something or someone that needs something or someone to defend it. Is that true? So we need to avoid those cyclical defensive behavior mechanisms and to practice expanding our sphere of compassion to include everyone. And this is a direct way to experience and embody the true self. And also we call it true self, but we don't have to call it anything. We don't have to call it anything because we... We say true self often enough, and that becomes a thing in the mind, which I understand or I don't understand. I get it or I don't get it. So even that has to be thrown away. And then we are left with just experiencing and embodying. What is it? I don't know. Who are you? I don't know. But I experience. And this is what Buddhism teaches as no self, which is another uh, common mistake or, or misunderstanding about no self. We think we have to negate something. We think we have to go against something. That's not what the teachings are saying. Of course, there is a self. It's just not what we think it is. <laughs> 
It's not what our senses are telling us. It is not what appearances are showing us. They are showing. But they are showing what is way beyond our interpretations of it. So yes, there is. But that self has no divisions. So the no in the no self is referring to a total embrace and complete affirmation rather than a negation or a rejection. And this is something that we need to go back to again and again and again because we have very persistent ways of thinking and they're very firm in the mind. So we have to keep going back to that. It's not what I think it is. So the question, what do you call the world, begins with the question, what do you call the self? So when I define myself, I define others. When I define others, I define the world. And when I do that, I fixate. And then I believe that that fixation is real. And this is what I end up obeying. I end up taking refuge in my own ideas of a self. And seeing ourselves and others in such a fixed way creates a distorted and unhealthy reality and it makes it impossible to truly hear each other or to foster care, true care for one another. What we end up doing is communicating with each other's conceptual images. So one conceptual image is communicating with another conceptual image. It's no wonder that we create so much chaos. We don't even hear each other. So how do we transcend our static view of reality is a question to work with. How, we, how do we mobilize what seems to be static? Like every time there is a thought in the mind that says, I am not good. Oh, I'm great. Here's an example. At that moment, what is it? Who is not good? Who is great? Or what about just leave it alone? A thought comes, I'm great. It moves on. It moves on. It does, doesn't it? I suck. It moves on. I've achieved. I have not achieved. Not yet. Why does it matter? Why does it matter to us? It's probably better to ask. Why does it matter to me? So in this koan, we encounter Dijang who lived during the 9th, 10th century in China and was the successor of Zhuangzi. He first studied Zen under Zhefeng, but, but it says that he was unable to penetrate the teaching, so he went to study other, under Zhuangzi. One day, Zhuangzi questioned him and said, in the three realms there is only mind. 
How do you understand this? This is from the Diamond Sutra. And the Zhang pointed to a chair and said, What does the master call this? Zhuangxia said, A chair. Di Zhang then said, Then the master can say that in the three worlds there is only mind. And Zhuangxia said, I say it is made from bamboo and wood. What do you say it's made of? Di Zhang said, I say it's made from bamboo and wood. Zhuangxia said, I've searched across the great earth for a person who understands the Buddha Dharma, but I haven't found one. And then it says that this dialogue cleared up all Di Zhang's doubts. How is this possible? What happens? They were just talking about four-legged platform. How could that clear up all his doubts? Where are we looking for it? Oh, it's just a chair made of bamboo and wood or whatever, straw. It's just this. And then you say it again and again and again. And what is it? And you say it again and again, you look at it again and again until it transcends the interpretations in the mind. And then you realize, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. Then I'm free to call it a chair. I know what it is. I am not free to call it a chair. Either way, we call it a chair. Either way, we call this one by the name. Either way, we call each other by names. That doesn't change. It doesn't have to change. If we think we know, there's the problem. So the instance brought up in this koan took place later when Dijang was already a teacher. And he was having a dialogue with Yushan, who happened to visit his monastery while traveling on a pilgrimage. So Dijang asked Zhushan, where do you come from? Zhushan said, from the south. Dijang said, how is Buddhism in the south these days? Zhushan said, there is extensive discussion. So conversations like this one, or koans in general, may appear to be, or some of them may appear to be irrelevant to everyday life or disconnected, which is why we need to examine the way we hear it, examine the way we work with the koan, the way we listen to teishas. And we need to enter the koan and experience it in our own body and mind, rather than think, well, this is irrelevant to me. Yeah, of course, if I am the one listening to this, I'm the one who's deciding what is relevant for me, for my life. Where, where am I looking at that from? From a fixed position. From what I know. And I refuse to change that because from what I know about myself, about the world, I will choose to either accept or deny. That's not what the practice is, or the way the practice is asking us to work with koans or to work with life. 
And that's what we have to change. It's not about the Quran. The Quran is just a Quran, just words on a book, or that we hear them. If we allow it to penetrate, if we are willing to allow it to destabilize our fixed sense of self, then it will. Then it will do it. Because we agree. We agree or we allow ourselves to be, to be destabilized. That's where the, the rubber meets the road. That's where practice really matters. Otherwise, we're just playing with reflections. We're willing and dealing, accepting, denying, which is what we always do, which is what everybody does. Then, of course, we have to ask what's the difference between this practice or reading a book or listening to the news. It's all the same. So we need to experience it in our body and mind. In this case, the question is where you, where you come from is the state of your... It's asking you about the state of your practice. It's not asking Zrishan. It's asking us today, now, where do you come from? What is the state of your practice? How do you see this? How do you see Buddhism? Zhushan says that there is extensive discussion and lots of interest in Buddhism, which may also be what we are doing or the way we engage with traditional text and book or book studies. It may be intriguing and it may stimulate the intellect, but does this mean that we're actually practicing and embodying the teachings? Or are we creating conceptual oasis that separates us from, or further separates us from meeting the challenges of everyday life? I'm going to take a break from everyday life and go into my practice because I can't take it anymore. Because I can't hear the news anymore. And if we practice this way, then what? then we create a barrier. And then actually the world will, the, the, the loudness of the world will become louder. The obnoxiousness of the world will become more obnoxious. And the resistances in us can be even more resistive. You know, the, the word Buddhism can also be translated to awakenism which means to take refuge in who you are in essence instead of putting your trust and defending your mind's created image of a self. Wake up. Wake up to what is already there. In terms of practice, it means to wake up to life as it shows up moment by moment. Meet it from the deeper place of our being or in our being and move forward with unity and embrace. We need to become aware of our distorted view of reality, which leads to our self-deception and our harmful actions. And we need to become aware of that self-deception or the mechanism that propels it. And often, not only that we're not aware of it, we actually feed it by the way we think, 
and the way we speak about what we think. So we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, equanimity, equanimity or, or evenness is actually an, our natural state of being that's often covered. It gets covered up when we follow our distorted views of reality. So we have to do this on the go. We have to again and again go back to that sense of equanimity and maintain it on the go rather than be taken up by what happens and allow it to destabilize that sense of equanimity. We have to come back to this and care for it and maintain it. And in a way, we get in touch with that. In Z- we can get in touch with that in Zazen. But what we get in touch with in Zazen doesn't just show up from nowhere. And it doesn't go anywhere when Zazen ends or when we meet the chaos of life. So when we do get in touch with it, we experience something. We experience who we are. We may not be able to name it. We may not be able to define it in any way or to even understand it in any way. Yet there is an experience. There is an experience, and that experience is not about the way we look that day, what we have, what we lack. It has nothing to do with anything. It just is. And, and what's really important is that we, we go back to those experiences, trust those experiences, and then keep going back to those experiences when we are on the go, meeting moment by moment life. And ask ourselves, where have I lost touch with it? So when we are in touch with it, we know what it feels like. And then life happens. We go to work, we get on, we're on a bus, we're on a train. We, we end up showing up at the office or doing what we're doing. And then we get distracted. How do we find our way back to that, is the question. And, and the, the practice of awareness is extremely important because if we are aware, constantly aware, then we will notice that when we start to drift away, when we start to inch away from that experience, we will feel it. And even if we don't feel it, if we, are, if we, we go back or resume that sense of awareness, we can trace our steps back to that point of losing it, losing touch with it, and just resuming it again and again and again and again. It's doable. It's possible. But it doesn't just happen. So we have to be diligent. We can't just talk about it. Zhushan says there is extensive discussion about Buddhism. And the footnote says, lower your voice. Lower your voice. Which means be quiet for a while. Instead of participating in idle discussions about Buddhism, take some time to listen to the the truth beyond the chatter. beyond the chatter of the mind, beyond the chatter with ourselves and with others. A lot of idle chatter. 
There's a lot of chatter that happens just as a way to distract ourselves, to run away from something, to not face, to not own up. So what happens when we lower our voice and we get quiet? When we don't give voice to the thoughts, to the distorted thoughts that appear in the mind. And any thought about a self is essentially distorted thought. Any thought about a self is a distortion. Any, any thought about worthiness of a self is a distortion of reality. It happens. It's just not true. Right? It's true that it happens. It's just not true. And it takes courage to do that because we take heed. We take refuge in those thoughts. We take refuge in the story. We take refuge in the need to annex more land. More and more and more. Why? Because I'm not enough. Who told you that? Or who is telling you that? So Zhushan said, there is extensive discussion. And Dijang says, how can that compare to me here planting the fields and making rice to eat? How can anything, anything compare to your day-to-day -day actions as you nurture life through what may be seen as mundane activities? Expression of a Buddha. When we experience true emptiness as a formless essence that is being expressed to each of us, whatever we do, wherever we are, whatever, wherever we go, we realize, we realize, we truly realize the preciousness of each moment. We realize who we are. Or when we stop trying to realize who we are, we realize who we are. When we actually rest, truly rest in our day-to-day -day activities, it doesn't sound logical. Because how, how do we rest in chaos? Right? But to rest in whatever it is we do, wherever we find ourselves. As the pointer says, scholars plow with a pen, orators plow with the tongue. We, patch robe mendicants, us, practitioners, lazily watch the white ox on an open ground, not paying attention to the rootless, auspicious grass. When Zhushan heard Dijang's reply, he asked, what can you do about the world? And Dijang said, what do you call the world? In the Diamond Sutra, it says, it is not the world, therefore it is called the world. It is not, therefore it is. 
it is precisely because it is not. But how do we understand this? And how can it help us become a force of goodness in this world? There are many ways to help, to be of service, to do good for others. But unless we experience and embody the even, we will not be able to truly embrace and work with the crooked, with the uneven. So first, it is not the world. Then comes, therefore, we call it the world. On the level of it is not the world, it doesn't matter what choices we make and what consequences we have to deal with. Nothing matters simply because there is nothing there. An empty sky does not differentiate, judge, or discriminate. There are no parameters. And then, on the level of, therefore, we call it the world, how you manifest in this world matters greatly, and the consequences are grave. That's why we choose to be on this spiritual path. That's why we take on precepts. That's why we need to do the best we can to uphold them. Even at times we encounter great inner resistance or outer resistance. So we can view Zazen as a way to experience the total negation of it is not the world. And the post-Zazen as a way to manifest the complete affirmation of therefore it is called the world. So our greatest task is to see this in a non-dualistic way and gradually blur the line between form and emptiness or zazen and everyday life. So we can freely express this essence or the essence of practice in the way we function in the world. Chongyam Trungpa wrote about the work of integration between zazen and everyday life, and I just want to share a bit of what he said. He said, sometimes we talk about the post-meditation experience, which refers to our experience after we meditate. We should say that it extends to our, every, to our experience of our work life or home life, the boardroom, the kitchen sink. Then that experience is influenced by mindfulness or by our practice. Beyond that, by applying mindfulness in post-meditation or mindfulness in action, you begin to transcend or break down the boundary between meditation and no meditation. The benefits of meditation can also begin to help you in your daily life. Daily problems and the pain of daily life may often feel almost poisonous. However, meditative awareness can help you to convert that poison into medicine, the medicine of cheerfulness. You begin to develop the ability to transform difficulties into delight, something delightfully workable. This transformation comes from appreciating your life, including its irritations and challenges. However, purely working on the mindfulness in action situation alone is not enough without the formal practice of meditation. This may seem somewhat doctrinaire arbitrary, but I have found that it is the case. When the practice of meditation has a footing in your life and becomes a regular practice, 
irregular discipline, the contrast between sanity and neurosis in daily life becomes clear and precise. So working with both the formal practice of meditation and the post-meditation practice seems to be the only way to dismantle the fundamental core of our ego's game. One of the main things that I would like to encourage is the confidence that we can actually do this ourselves. We can simply rely upon prescriptions, but the one prescription, the one choiceless choice is the need for sitting practice of meditation. This is essential, absolutely. And I would like to second that. I hope you will too. So, absolutely essential. But with that, it's absolutely essential that we know how to practice correctly. And it's absolutely essential that we know how to mobilize the practice into everyday life. So, we have to understand what post-meditation means. What it means to practice everyday life. What it means to blur the line between sitting, standing, laying down, sitting, standing, walking. It's always even. We don't always experience evenness, but it's always even. We are never fixed. We are never stuck. And that's the challenge, to go beyond the thoughts that says, I am stuck. Or I have a problem which I am not up, up to. I can't deal with this challenge. It is too much. I can't take this anymore. I can't hear the news anymore. What does that even mean? I can't. There's another way to say that. I need to expand a little bit more. I am contracting. I am contracting to a fixed self. Therefore, I don't have enough room in me for this or for you. So I can reject you or I can work on becoming more expansive. What we often do is reject each other. How about turning it around and working on examining how we become contracted, becoming aware of it and expanding? That would be a good way to meet each other. So I'm going, because of time, I'm going to skip the, the verse. And I want to finish with uh, this paragraph from the commentary. It says, Even though planting the field and making rice is ordinary, unless you investigate to the full, you don't know their import. Then you define it as ordinary. The ancients would reap and boil chestnut and rice at the edge of a hoe or a broken-legged pot, deep in the mountains, their fortune was no more than contentment. All their lives, they never sought from anyone. Their nobility was no more than purity and serenity. What for bushes and emblems? Thus, having investigated to the full, you clearly know there is nothing to seek. And again, having investigated to the full, you clearly know that there is nothing to seek. If we don't investigate to the full, we run around with the assumption 
of insufficiency. We run around with the assumption that we need to prove something to someone. And when we realize, when we realize, and only then, that we are truly, we're truly who we are, we're truly there already, and rest in it, we experience a deep sense of completeness. And then, there's no longer to feel, there's no need to feel insufficient or to feel that we have to prove something to someone. And this is freedom. Because as long as we, as long as we entertain the idea of insufficiency, we will never feel free. So today, now, as is, with the state of the world, as crazed as it is, you are sufficient. You are complete. The madness doesn't take away. And knowing that we are complete, feeling that we are complete, we can do good for the world, with the world, and as the world. So investigate to the full. Keep going. Keep practicing. Use what's going on to fuel your practice rather than make you jaded about it or make, make you jaded about the world. Use it well. Thank you. <laughs>